Good afternoon and welcome back to Midday Magazine. My name is Shelby Herbert and I'm reporting for KFSK. While ConocoPhillips faces national scrutiny over a future Arctic oil drilling site known as Willow, state regulators took testimony last Thursday about an uncontrolled natural gas leak last year at Alpine, a developed oil field about 30 miles away. The company rerouted the gas through a waste disposal well within days, but it took more than three weeks to stop the leak at the source. ConocoPhillips employees repeatedly told, told the Alaska Oil and Gas Conservation Commissioners that no people or wildlife were harmed and that the gas was not emitted beyond the gravel drilling pad known as CD1. But residents in nearby Nuiqsut evacuated, and Nuiqsut Mayor Rosemary Atunguruk said people there remain concerned about the health impacts of emissions, particularly on pregnant women, infants, and elders. This event gave our community members much concern. We want to fully understand to prevent this from happening with the new developments that will be nearby our community. The mayor asked for an alarm system to warn of future emissions. ConocoPhillips chief Alaska well engineer Erica Livingston said the company is tracking pressure more closely but has not required alarms that would signal an event of this type. That is something that can be used. We have not mandated that within the SOP. Uh, but again, it's been, we're able to track that pressure and, uh, and watch it much more closely than we had in the past. Some sections of the well were reinforced with concrete to prevent events like this, but the source of the leak was determined to be from an area 3,000 feet down from a formation not previously known to contain much gas. Commissioner Jesse Chimilowski asked why the company doesn't use more concrete. Livingston said uh, ConocoPhillips relies on its well design and if required, the company would use more concrete. The commission is considering the case for a possible reinforcement action, which could include fines. Commission Chair Brett Hubert said the panel will issue a written decision, but did not say when. Southeast Alaska's sea otters were driven to near extinction by the fur trade in the early 20th century. But since they were reintroduced to the region in the 1960s, their numbers have grown considerably. Sea otters are a keystone species, protecting vital kelp beds, but they also prey on crab and clams that make up lucrative fisheries. They're protected by federal law, and only certain Alaska Native people can hunt them. But as otter populations have grown, so have calls to loosen the strict federal rules protecting them. And as Reagan Miller reports from Ketchikan, that has some people concerned. Christy Ruby stands in her studio on the north end of Ketchikan next to a table piled high with soft blue, red, and purple sea otter pelts. These are her best-selling colored sea otter, and since 2017, she's used the dyed fur in her traditional handicrafts. I use them sparingly because it costs twice or three times as much to have them dyed that color. She says the rich colors are what make her creations unique. She's grateful for her ability to hunt the animals. But Ruby worries that efforts to reform sea otter management could jeopardize her business and traditional creations. To be clear, scientists aren't sure that otters are overpopulated in southeast Alaska. 
There are now more than 25,000 spread throughout the panhandle, and one 2019 study estimated that the region's ecosystems could support three times as many. But that hasn't stopped efforts to reduce their numbers. Ketchikan's borough assembly recently took the topic to lawmakers in Washington, D.C., and asked for control of the federally managed species to be turned over to the state or for current regulations to change. It's not the first time the issue has come up. Petersburg's assembly called for higher harvests in 2018. The late Congressman Don Young attempted to make it easier to sell intact hides. Proponents say that increasing sea otter hunting would help bolster lucrative shellfish fisheries. But Ruby says those changes won't fix the problem, at least not without putting her traditional work at risk. She says state control of otter hunting could result in more red tape, preventing her from creating her work. The state will get funding and they'll have areas where they'll close off to even natives, won't be able to hunt that area because they say there's lack of otters there, which, you know, you cannot track an otter. They move all the time. She's worried about allowing non-native hunters to kill sea otters. That's against the law under the 1972 Marine Mammal Protection Act. If the rules are relaxed, Ruby says she thinks hunters will flood the market with hides and lower the value of their traditional work she creates. They'll turn them into coats and all this stuff that they want to do, and our crafts will be gone because we don't have the ability to pay that much money for what the hunters will get for that hide. She's also worried about backlash. If sea otter pelts become a widely traded commercial commodity, she says she's concerned that could spark calls for hunting to be banned outright. Will Ware, a clinket artist who lives in Petersburg, also opposes opening sea otter hunts to non-native people. He says there are simpler solutions, starting with the Marine Mammal Protection Act itself. The law currently requires hunters to be at least one-fourth coastal Alaska native by blood quantum. He says he'd like to allow any enrolled tribal member to hunt. I think you would see a lot more otters being harvested each year. That, that would be low-hanging fruit that would immediately make a difference. Weir also thinks that the rule should change to allow the exportation of tanned hides and handicrafts to Canada. Neither is currently allowed under federal law. He says Clinket and Haida people have been sending goods through that route for years. Jeremiah James, an artist based in Yakutat, also has an issue with marketing laws. Some of his pieces have sold for around $1,000, but he can't reach a wider market. It's one thing to sell it in the country to each other, but we're just passing money back and forth, and that's not how you create wealth. He also agrees that non-native people shouldn't be allowed to kill sea otters. He says laxer rules could allow businesses to squeeze out Alaska Native artists. When people talk about opening it up to more people, all I see it is another thing that's being taken away from my people. But Ware, the Petersburg artist, says he sympathizes with crabbers and dive fishermen who say that higher otter populations are weighing on fisheries. He emphasized that he doesn't want to pit fishermen and Native hunters and artists against each other. We sense the frustration. Alaska Natives utilize the shrimp and crab you know, as part of our subsistence foods and our, our traditional and customary foods. For millennia, we, we don't want to see the crab or shrimp disappearing any more than anyone else. Back in her brightly lit studio, surrounded by fur-draped mannequins and old sewing machines, Ruby, the Ketchikan artist, says she agrees. She thinks the answer lies in more aggressive support for native hunters, and maybe even more communication with crabbers and fishermen about where they're seeing the otters move. It's a no-brainer when it comes to actually making something happen, but we just don't get the full cooperation from everybody. The bottom line, she says is that policymakers concerned about the impacts of otter populations should focus their efforts on increasing the capacity of existing hunters and craftspeople. 
She says a Southeast Alaska tannery, for instance, would allow her to process more hides and cut down on considerable shipping costs. Because there's no tannery quality tannery here. We have a few tanneries, but they don't put out the quality that people really want to use. She says hunters, crabbers, and dive fishermen all have the same goal, and they should work together. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. A Petersburg High School graduate is one of seven, 11 Alaskans to be inducted into the Alaska High School Hall of Fame of 2023. Isabel Eath graduated Petersburg High School in 2017. She has since moved out of state for college and work. Eath says it was quite a shock to find her Hall of Fame letter in the mail earlier this month. It's not something I was expecting. I don't think it's very often that Southeast Alaska is represented in these types of things, so that definitely makes it extra special. After graduating from PHS, Eath went to Williams College in Massachusetts. After college, Eath settled in Boston, where she conducts pulmonary research at Boston Children's Hospital. But her hometown still holds a special place in her heart. My greater hope is that this does reflect back on Petersburg. Petersburg is so unique that you can go from like school to swim practice to dance practice and really get exposed to all of those things. And I think what's cool about this honor is that it also highlights the importance of interscholastic athletics and activities in rural Alaska. And I hope that Petersburg continues to encourage kids and make it possible for everyone to participate in sports. The award honors individuals who achieved excellence in high school athletics and personal conduct, according to the Alaska School Activities Association. Eth is being recognized for her achievements as a track and field athlete. She competed in many different categories, but mostly focused on the shorter events. She won four state track titles in the 100-meter hurdles and the triple jump, and two in the 300-meter hurdles and the long jump. She says the lessons she learned from her track days are helping her navigate the real world. I think teamwork is a huge part of just the world we live in today. And being able to get along with lots of different types of people and put in personal effort. And so I think in my work, I love working with the patients I work with now. And I work in a team every day to try to make like medical research possible. Eth was nominated for the Hall of Fame title by her former teacher, Joanne Day. She says her friends, family, and mentors in Petersburg played a huge role in her success. I definitely did not do this alone. I had amazing classmates and surrounded myself with really high-achieving, inspiring friends like Emma Chase and Mariah Taylor, just to name a few. None of my achievements would have been possible without the amazing teachers at Petersburg High School. You know, I want to thank my track coach, Brad Taylor. His belief in me was absolutely bottomless throughout middle and high school. Of course, my mom, Marquetta Eats, she continues to be a personal and athletic inspiration for me as she trains for uh, the Boston Marathon right now, actually. Eats' running career didn't end after college. She's a member of the Boston Children's Hospital Running Club and helps coordinate the organization's runs. She's also training for a triathlon. Eth will be inducted into the Alaska Hall of Fame on May 7th. She is the second Petersburg High School graduate graduate to receive the honor following Cameron Severson, who was inducted in 2018. 
Last Tuesday, protesters across the country organized rallies against four major banks for funneling more than a trillion dollars to fossil fuel projects in recent years. In Juneau, organizers called their protest the Great Alaska Credit Card Chainsaw Massacre. Anna Canny has the report. Two dozen people holding picket signs are lined on the sidewalk outside the Wells Fargo Bank in downtown Juneau. Doug Woodby is leading a small crowd in a call and response. On the bed of a pickup, Bob Schroeder stands before a plywood model of an Alaska Airlines credit card. He lifts his chainsaw. And then he slices the card in two, tossing the pieces on the street. This was just one of more than 100 demonstrations across the nation on Tuesday for the Stop Dirty Banks Day of Action. Demonstrators gathered outside of big banks like Wells Fargo, Citibank, Chase Bank, and Bank of America, which owns the popular Alaska Airlines credit card. Every time we deposit and insert, swipe, or tap our cards, congratulations, we've just helped to finance extreme oil. The hope is to pressure banks to end their investments in oil and gas expansion. Alaska is at the center of a national debate on fossil fuel expansion. Earlier this month, the Biden administration approved the Willow Project. It's the major ConocoPhillips oil drilling project on Alaska's North Slope. The project was a rallying point for Rebecca Contreras, who spoke on Tuesday. She's an activist with the Tongass chapter of Women for Forests. In her speech, she called attention to the state's continued push for mining and drilling activities. I'm sick of hearing people, culture, and land protection are important. And industry is getting shoved down our throat. Conco Phillips relies on big banks to fund projects like Willow. They've received $10 billion from the four banks since the signing of the Paris Agreements. The demonstration's national organizers hope that customers can pressure their banks to stop funding new oil and gas projects. The vast majority of protesters are retirees. Older Americans are well-suited to appeal to banks. They control the vast majority of wealth in the United States. In Juneau, protesters said they want their concern about climate change to be reflected in how they manage their money. For Kate Troll, that might mean ditching the Alaska Airlines credit card. We love the miles, you know, uh, but I think we have to... Uh, think about the greater trade-off, and that's what this is trying to bring attention to. Some demonstrators signed a pledge to close their accounts if banks don't commit to ending fossil fuel financing. Before Tuesday, the pledge had over 17,000 signatures nationally. I come from southeast Alaska, where it rains a lot on me. And I'm going to move my money to a bank that's fossil-free. Whether the protest will have any sway remains to be seen. The banks have overlooked multiple calls to limit funding for fossil fuels in the past. In Juneau, I'm Anna Kenny. Thank you so much for joining me for Midday Magazine. My name is Shelby Herbert, and I'm reporting for KFSK. Coming up next, local and marine weather.